you'll certainly find it useful to keep that open in front of you. That's page 1023 in Micah chapter 6. But before we go any further, it would be appropriate for us to pray first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for the work of the Holy Spirit this morning, that through the work of the Holy Spirit we would hear and understand your voice. Help us to then respond as we should to grow into the people that you want us to be. Amen. No one likes to be accused of wrongdoing. No one likes to be accused of wrongdoing. When I go to the supermarket uh, shopping, I use one of those self-scanners as I go along through the aisles, picking up the, every item and scanning it on the barcode. I'm confident I've mastered this modern technology. So it annoys me when I go to, the, to go to pay, and then a red light comes out, lots of signs and things like this, and the shop assistant comes along and then has to rescan my goods. Now I'm told it's just a random uh, choice, but it does feel, doesn't it? It feels specifically they've singled me out. They think perhaps I'm stealing. And even when they say, everything's okay, sir, I still feel aggrieved because I feel I've been unjustly accused of wrongdoing. I will, however, admit that uh, earlier this year I received a parking ticket. I was dropping Helen off at Heathrow Airport and there were plenty of signs telling me that I should expect to pay five pounds for the, the privilege of just dropping off somebody for a few minutes. Uh, and when I stopped, I immediately looked for a meter to pay, which wasn't there. When I exited, I expected perhaps to, see, uh, to, to pay at the barrier, but no. Apparently, I was meant to be a mind reader. I was expected to know that I had to pay online beforehand or within a few days afterwards. Well, I didn't know, and negligence of the law is, of course, no excuse. I got home, and I just forgot all about it. And then I had the joy of a present in the post of a penalty charge. I was really aggrieved, but it was my fault. No one likes to be accused of wrongdoing, even if absolutely guilty as charged. Far too often, we get so defensive, don't we? We feel we're being criticised, and we do not welcome what is being said to us. Now, I suspect when the prophet Micah spoke God's words to the people, they didn't like a large amount of what was being said. They probably did not welcome being accused of wrongdoing. But this message cannot be brushed off. You can't just claim, well, it wasn't me, uh, it's not my fault, uh, I'm just a victim of my circumstances. Like it or not, welcome it or not, God's word needs to be heard. As Micah declares, doesn't he, in Micah chapter 6, right at the beginning, he declares, listen, listen to what the Lord says. And Micah chapter 6, it, it reads like a court scene. Have you ever been in court? I have. Not being charged myself, but I've been there for the... I've been there for jury service, of course. Now, God's people stand in the dock. 
They receive an accusation. They're summoned to assemble in the presence of their creator God to listen to the charges against them. Let me reread verses 1 and 2. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is longing, he's lodging a charge against Israel. Throughout this book of Micah, which we've been working our way through week after week after week, harsh, strong words have been said by God to his people. And in particular, they're being said to their leaders. Indeed, I, I think we've got about 70% of this book is full of warnings of judgment. It's not pleasant to hear. But it's not unjust. It's not false accusation. It is the truth. And God says, you are guilty as charged, my people. Over many weeks, chapter by chapter, their sins have brought judgment upon them from the Lord. They have acted wickedly. They're clinging to idols, worshipping false gods rather than trusting in the one true and living God, the Lord Almighty. The leaders are oppressing the people. They're taking the possessions of people and they're, they're harming the weak. They're showing a total disregard for the very people they should be helping. There is no justice from these leaders as they misuse their power. I did chapter 3 a few weeks ago and we heard there of the prophets preaching their message for money rather than according to the will of the Lord. Well, in each message, each time Micah speaks the words of God, God is declaring a coming judgment for their sin. But amongst those, those strong words, we do also hear of a future restoration once the judgment is complete. So what does God want? Why is God judging? Well, the answer is in these verses and teaches us, teaches us much about the character of God. So as I said, when I read those to you, verses 1 and 2, the law begins with the imagery of dragging the people of Israel into the courtroom. The Lord says he's going to plead the case he has against Israel before all the earth, in front of all his creation. He has an indictment against his people. And what does he say in verse 3? What is that opening argument? He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. What has the Lord done that you've decided to leave him, to turn from God's ways? What has God done to make your life a burden? What is your difficulty that you have with the Lord? And then in the following verses, the Lord defends himself. The Lord declares, what has he done? He's brought them out of Egypt. He redeemed them from their slavery. He sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to, to lead them from their slavery. So what's this 
liberation from slavery now boring? Does the story of the Exodus make you want to yawn? People of God, do you not remember? You crossed the sea and it was dry land. Yet when Pharaoh and his army followed, the sea returned and destroyed them. Have you forgotten this? Have you forgotten what I, the Lord, have done for you? Have you forgotten your redemption? And not only did did the Lord set them free from slavery in Egypt, the Lord wants the people to remember what he did for them after the exodus. God says, remember also what I did when I gave you protection from peril. Remember the evil Balak, the king of Moab, plotted against you. And remember what Balaam, the son of Bor, answered. Now that's talking back about incidences you can find if you look back into Numbers chapter 24, 22, 23, 24. Balak, the, son, the king of Moab, he'd hired Balaam, the prophet, to pronounce curses against Israel. But as much as Balaam wanted to pronounce those curses for money, he recognized that he could only proclaim the words the Lord put into his mouth. So every time Balaam attempted to pronounce curses, blessings on Israel came from his mouth. The Lord wants the people to remember he protected you. I set you free. And when people tried to harm you with curses, I turned those curses into blessings. And in that third example, the Lord says to remember what happened in their journey from Shittim to Gilgal. And that's telling a story of, um, of a miraculous crossing of the Jordan River and a miraculous victory over Jer- Jericho. God's declaration is very simple here. All that he has done for Israel is to take care for them. All he has ever done is to keep giving, to give them blessings upon blessings and to keep his covenant promises. How then, how then, verse 3, has God become a burden to you? How has God become a weariness to your very soul? He set you free from your slavery. He gave you leaders you needed to succeed. He blessed you on your journey. He conquered your enemies. In his amazing grace, he performed miraculous acts to see his love and his power towards you. How has God wearied you? God says through Micah, surely, surely these stories should grip you. Surely they should excite you. Surely they should move you. Surely they should drive you forward in thanks and praise with grateful hearts. Now before we all sit here and think that this is just an old history lesson, a voice of God spoken years and years and years ago and is no longer relevant, let's just pause. Let's remember that that verse from uh, Corinthians that once more these things happened to them and were written down why as warnings for us they're lessons relevant for us today god could have the very same indictment and charge against us we might think we've got better 
We might think we are, we're doing everything perfectly, but do our lives look like the people of Israel when Micah speaks? Do we act as if it's become a burden to be a Christian? Has it become a, a chore or, or a bore to follow Jesus' ways? Is it a bore to worship him as we, or, or give our lives to him? God could still be saying, have I wearied you? Well, today and every day, we need to rejoice at what God has done for us and let that motivate all that we do. God has set us free from our slavery to sin through Jesus Christ on the cross. Rejoice, the Lord gave us leaders we need. Rejoice, he gave us Jesus. Rejoice, he gave us the apostles. Rejoice, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can succeed. Rejoice, the Lord has blessed us on our journey to the promised land, to the new creation, to the new Jerusalem. Rejoice, the Lord has conquered our enemies and performed miraculous acts as seen in the very resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why? To show his love and power towards us. Has God wearied you? We might think that these mighty works were, were thousands of years ago. But we are to continue to rejoice always at God's faithfulness that does continue each and every day. And in a way, this is what Micah was saying to Israel. It was 800 years had passed since the Exodus. But God wanted them to continue to look back to that exorcist as the defining moment for their lives. So what is God asking his people to do? Now for the ancient Jew, the single most important thing in life was worship, to come before the Lord at the temple with something appropriate to hand, to offer, and to sacrifice to God. So you might have read with surprise that the sort of tone it's almost sarcastic here in verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come but before him with burnt um, offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What does God want us to come to him with? Does God want a, a bunch of uh, burnt offerings when you come into his presence? The implied answer is obviously no. Would he be pleased if you came to him with thousands of rams for offering to him? The answer appears to be no. Should you bring 10,000 rivers of oil to him? No, that's not what God wants. Does God want you to give your firstborn child for your sins? Yet again, the implied answer is obviously no. For God does not want the impossible. God is not asking for, for, for that. We cannot redeem ourselves. God is not asking us to do something that is outside of our ability. Neither is God asking us to perform a bunch of religious acts. Often the religious world defaults into this kind of thinking of doing things. 
But actually, we do them for ourselves, don't we, sometimes, to feel good in ourselves and somehow to earn God's approval. And therefore, we, you know, we may say to ourselves, well, I'll go to church every week. Um, we'll say, I'll give money. And we think somehow that that buys favor from the Lord. God is not asking for that, is he? God is not asking for his people to turn him into some sort of pagan god that needs appeasing. He's not the, the volcano god that needs a sacrifice to avoid an eruption all over the plate people. Neither is God impressed with your extravagant gifts or religious actions. What does God want? Well, when you open your Bibles, look at verse 8. What does God, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God is not asking us to do the impossible. God wants us to do right by people, to love kindness and mercy, and to live a humble life with God. Verse 6 asks the question, how should you come before the Lord? And verse 8 is the answer. You come before the Lord, not with gifts, not with sacrifices, but with your humble heart that loves mercy and does what is right. What is our response, therefore, in a, in a world of wickedness? What is our response in a world of sin and injustice? What does faithfulness look like in a broken world? Our response is not to act like the world. Our response is to be different. Our response is to show to the world a life transformed by God. Then we will be able to do what is right and fair. Then we will be able to show mercy and kindness. Then we will truly walk in humility with the Lord. Jesus said very much the same thing when he, uh, when he was teaching the people. Let me quickly read from, from Matthew 23 in verses 23 to 25 where, where, where Jesus cries out, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice mercy and faithfulness you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former you blind guides you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you clean the temple of the cup the outside of the cup and and uh, and a dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to what was being said back in Micah's day. It's not what's on the outside, is it? It's what's on the inside. Those religious people in Jesus' day, they thought they were very good at giving their money, but outside, and outside they looked very holy. And outside, they, they seem to think that, they're, that God must be very, very pleased with them for what they are doing. But actually, what does God want? He wants us to act just, justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So we must never miss the need for us to do that, to do what is right from the heart, to act justly, 
to show mercy, to faithfully follow the Lord in humility, to walk humbly with our God, seeking to please him step by step. Can we do this? Well, I want to suggest that we should be doing this. This should be our mission statement indeed, how we live in response to all that God has given to us. Remembering always our God who through his grace and mercy has rescued and redeemed us from sin through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us, uh, let all that God has done for us be the motivation for how we lead our lives. Now, when we go home afterwards, we do need to, to think for ourselves, how do, we, how do we really apply this instruction? We're all, we're all be different, but we need to ask of ourselves, what would it look like for us to love justice or to practice justice and to love kindness? What does it mean in our lives, in the places where we spend our time, to, in our families, in our community? And as we consider ways to apply these words, let us again remember what God has done for us. Micah listed examples of God's righteous acts known to the people at that time. And since then, there's been an even greater act as well. Christ died. Jesus himself took our sins in his body on that tree. Christ rose from the dead and now reigns in heaven until one day when he will return and gather his people for the new creation. Surely these things should motivate our responses to how we lead our lives. What does God require of us? It's worth learning that one off by heart, isn't it? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all the things you have done for us. Thank you that in your mercy, you have redeemed your people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you constantly care and provide for your people. And therefore, may we, in response for all that you have done, may we be people you want us to be, followers of Jesus who act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our Lord. Amen.